Aren't we glad that uh, that song tells the truth? <laughs> Amen. It's been about 40 years since I have taught a course on the book of Revelation. And uh, over the years, from time to time, I've looked into that book, and I'm still not able to decide which of the four schools of interpretation are the most valid, whether it be the preterist, the idealist, the historist, or the futurist. But recently I've been drawn back to that book, and I've been reading it and pondering it and retranslating part of it and considering the different manuscript variances in the text and its place in the canon. You don't get very far into the book of Revelation after you get into chapter 4 before you begin noticing how many visions that were given to the Apostle Paul or rather the Apostle John, pardon me, are identical to, are very similar to, the visions that were given to some of the Old Testament prophets, especially Daniel. For example, in Revelation chapter 13, you find an almost identical vision to that which Daniel records in chapter 7, the beast with the horns and so on. Various images displaying the forces of Satan that are warring against God's kingdom and his saints. Especially I've noticed 725 concerning one of those satanic beings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One and will intend to make alterations in times and law. They'll be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Notice Satan's scheme is to wear down the saints of the Most High. In other words, Satan will press and fight until people don't say we're defeated. We don't say one. We're just worn out. And so we quit. <laughs> I'll tell you, this is a church of doers, and I'm sure there are many of you here today who can say, I understand being worn out. That vacation Bible school was something to see, just like a bunch of crazy bees running around doing all this work, and after uh, Friday after it was all over, how many people so exhausted they could hardly drag, stayed and put things away and cleaned up and came back Saturday Weariness. <laughs> the Lord recognizes that human condition of weariness. Remember in the story of the creation in chapter 2 of Genesis, it begins at saying, In six days God made heaven and earth and all that in therein is. <laughs> Depending on what version you're reading, that's Garrett's version. And then on the seventh day he rested. <laughs> and he sanctified that day and blessed it, the seventh day the day that later came to be known as the Sabbath. Now, you know what's interesting? The seventh day was never ordered by law to be observed. At least we have no record of it being so. Until the law of Moses, which began to be composed in 1447 B.C., in which the Ten Commandments were given, as recorded first in Exodus 20. And one of those is this, remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. 
But as we read of the command surrounding the Sabbath, it was not a day of worship. It was to be a day of rest. When God was with the Israelites in the Exodus, and they had no food, He began to give them manna was something like white frost on the ground every morning. And they went out and gathered it, and Jehovah said, On Friday, gather twice as much as you normally do. He said, if you gather one day enough for the next day, the next morning is going to be spoiled. So every day you have to trust me to supply. But on Friday, gather twice as much. I'll not give you any on Saturday. And yet, some of the people on Saturday left their dwellings and went out and started to try to gather manna. And so God very strongly said this to them in Exodus 16:29: The Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days. On the sixth day, remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. In other words, stay home and rest. That's the plan that is a part of the Mosaic law. The seventh day, the Sabbath, was not a day of worship until the Babylonian captivity when the temple was destroyed, the Jews, 586 B.C., were carried off to Babylon. And they began to fear, are we going to lose our identity as the people of God, the followers of the law of Moses? Will our children grow up as Gentiles? And so they began to ask the oldest person in each gathering to get people together and begin to teach them the law and teach them of the traditions so they would not lose their identity. And that was done on the Sabbath day. And that's when the synagogue began. Synagogos, the coming together is what that word means. And when they went back to Israel, they kept it. But until that time, the Sabbath was never a day of worship. By God's ordaining law, it was a day of rest. God recognizes the need of humanity as he created us. We all need some kind of a regular rest. Now some of you are realizing that more than others. I notice some of you are getting older. <laughs> Not you. Okay. You know, as we had last Sunday the <laughs> I guess you say the VBS theme song, and I watched Dawn. I thought, good Lord in heaven, why can't I have that kind of energy? <laughs> but I guess I never will. Matter of fact, here's an interesting thing. When I picked up my Bible this morning, I noticed it was heavier. I don't know how it got that way, <laughs> but it was heavier. <laughs> the years do start to tell, don't they? Now, for the first um, seven years, I was a, preaching the gospel. I preached to country churches. And in the rural life, in the agrarian culture, there is an annual cycle. And there are times that farmers just work themselves to death. And then there are weeks in which they have very little to do. That's the rhythm of life. But when we have come into the urban community and we work in factories and we work in offices 12 months a year, 
it in that way. So vacations are scheduled. <laughs> vacations are almost necessary, at least for some people, the need to take a break, to get away, to be refreshed. And yet, even though that's true, if you read the King James Bible, you will find this exhortation, do not grow weary in well-doing. <laughs> Paul uses that expression three times. Peter uses it three times. And with the expression well-doing, there's the exhortation, do not grow weary in well-doing. Now, other versions do not use the language well-doing, and that's the, re the reason is because in each of the passages where the King James renders well-doing, there are different Greek terms, and so each one implies something slightly different. This morning, I thought it would do us well because we are a church of doers <laughs> who sometimes just get worn out. Now we spend a few moments considering these exhortations and the specific thing that each one is exhorting. Number one, the exhortation to always do what is right in the face of opposition. Let me read from 1 Peter chapter 4 beginning with verse 12. Beloved do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also in the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you've been reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because a spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Oh my, don't some people need to hear that one. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. And then verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. King James says, well-doing. Matthew 10, 22. You'll be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 3. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, 
nor faint when you are reproved by him. And here, here the writer of Hebrews is elaborating which he wrote about in chapter 10, verses 32 to 36. He said, you remember in the past when you joyfully endured being ridiculed publicly, when you rejoiced that your possessions were taken away from you, and now he exhorts them again, you know, you've not shed blood yet. But remember what Jesus endured. Don't flinch. Do not fail to do what is right. Do the right thing in the face of opposition. Today, in our culture, we are called to be salt and light, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And opposition against us is growing. Sometimes it's very obvious and sometimes it isn't. We think of the Colorado baker who refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex wedding. Bake cakes for homosexuals, bake cakes for lesbians, but not for a wedding. That violates the will of God. A price was paid for that. Washington State florist who refused to make arrangements for a same-sex marriage. A price was paid for that. It's interesting that a New Mexico photographer who refused to do this and a Wisconsin photographer who refused to do this, the New Mexico photographer paid the price. The Wisconsin photographer, the law uh, courts there said, okay, isn't that interesting, that difference? New Mexico photographer pays a price. The Wisconsin photographer had to pay a lawyer. <laughs> but these are just examples that make the news. There is opposition today that is growing in this world, in this nation, against those who are strong servants of Jesus. When Gordon and I were traveling together in the Soviet Union, and I'm sure that the shoe packs can relate to this as well, we saw the consequence of a culture that said there is no God, a culture that said all human beings are is just a piece of flesh. There's no soul, there's nothing eternal. Now, we were told, and there was no way to verify this, but one time when we were in Kiev, we were told that a poll was taken of senior high school girls asking them what their goals were in life. And 62% said to be a dollar prostitute. If all I am is a piece of flesh, I might as well use the flesh. On one of our travels, we were outside of a train station. And as we were waiting for those to come and take us to a rendezvous, off to my right, I saw a little woman coming, shorter than I, Long black hair, filthy. This side of her face was smashed in. Not just the flesh, but the bone crushed. And she went over and sat down on the steps of the train station with a bowl and began to beg. Bob Love was with us. Bob heard he tried to do something, went to a policeman. He wouldn't do anything. Finally, Christians came. You have, we must do something for this one. You don't understand. They said, that's mafia. They get people addicted to drugs, they mutilate them, 
and they place them at key places and they panhandle at the end of every day. They come around and gather them up, take their money, do the same thing the next day. Eventually, most of them die. If all we are is a piece of flesh, that's what this nation is sometime going to be. And the opposition would like to take us there. When the 2003 law was passed banning partial birth abortion, there was a great outcry. It was reaffirmed by the Supreme Court in 2007. A Gallup poll was taken. Now, I don't know who the group was from whom they took this poll, but 36% of the people they interrogated said they were opposed to the ban that partial birth abortion should be allowed. I'm sure you know what that is, but if you don't, here's what it is. The baby is brought to almost full term. And then it is brought out of the birth canal, everything except the head. And then a physician, so-called physician, inserts an instrument to the base of the skull. A hollow tube is put in and the brain is vacuumed out of the baby and that it is brought forth dead. 36% of the Americans polled said that should not be against the law. That's where we're going. <laughs> Unless those of us who are followers of Jesus continue to do the right thing in the face of opposition. On the other side of the coin, we must be consistently diligent in being good citizens of our community. 1 Peter 2.13 15. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, King James says, well doing, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. We've spoken before in this pulpit of the letter that Pliny, who was a governor, wrote to Trajan, the emperor. And the emperor had ordered that Christians be arrested, jailed, and in some cases killed. And so Pliny began arresting Christians. He had them in jail. He tortured some, but he was trying to figure out what crime have they committed other than belonging to this odious cult. <laughs> That's the language he used. In Latin, of course, it's different, but in English, that's the language he used in writing to Trajan. In other words, to paraphrase, he said, look, they pay their taxes, they obey all the laws, they're not committing any crimes, they're good citizens. Why are we punishing them? Of course, that's God's will, isn't it, for us to be good citizens and not grow weary in well-doing in that role. You know, we've spoken in the past of when Peter and John were arrested after the lame man was healed, and here the court wanted to do something to him, but here this lame man that was healed in their midst, well, just don't go out and talk about Jesus anymore. 
Uh, later they got put in jail. Angel led them out. They were back preaching again. And so some soldiers were sent to arrest them. And the soldiers, it says, were very cautious and afraid because the crowd was there that all were on the side of the apostles. And the soldiers were afraid. But the disciples didn't say, okay, let's get them. They didn't raise a riot. They didn't start people marching around with signs. (laughs) But they submitted. And they were arrested. And they were whipped. They were beaten. But they disobeyed the court respectfully. They never showed disrespect. We must not grow weary in being good citizens. We must be consistent and not grow weary in responsible living. 1 Thessalonians 6.13 As for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good, the King James says, well, doing. What's he talking about? Well, read the preceding verses. It seems that when Paul preached in Thessalonica, especially about the second coming, people became excited. Jesus is coming. No reason to have a job. Let's just sit and rest and let the church feed us. Of course, the church could only feed us if somebody else was working. So Paul wrote this strong letter. You notice in the preceding verses to the one we just read, he says, A man who will not work should not eat. He said, when I was among you, when we were among you, I set the example. Now, I could have asked you to support me as an apostle. I have the right to do that, but I didn't. I worked as an example to you. We're to be consistent in living responsibly. Today, we hear the term, somebody has a good work ethic. Let me tell you something. If you're really a Christian, you have a good work ethic. (laughs) Because whatever you do in word or deed is done unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether that's cleaning toilets or preaching a sermon, we have, we pray, (laughs) we have a good work ethic. And then we are to be consistent in doing good deeds and works of compassion. Galatians 6, 9 to 10. Let us not lose heart in doing good or well-doing, as the King James says. For in time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, when we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And these verses are really defining what he says in verse 2. Bear one another's burden and fulfill the law of Christ. When Christianity began to expand in the early days in the empire of Rome, one thing that began to turn pagans to Jesus Christ were the good works of the church. Many people in the rural areas began to come into the cities looking for work, and frankly, most of them couldn't find it. Food was a challenge. Also, in that culture, the paterfamilia, the head of the family, if a baby were born, 
And the father, the head of the family, said, we don't really need another child, especially if it's a girl. That baby was put out on the front stoop and left to die. And that was common practice. But in Rome, the Christians began another practice, going out every morning or every night and picking up those babies and rearing them. And they grew up to be Christians. A plague hit the empire. People were dying. And people began to flee the cities, but not the Christians. The Christians came into the city and began to take care of those who were sick and dying by the plague. And so... The Romans started saying, there's something different about these people. And one of the things that caused the gospel of Jesus to have such success in the Roman Empire was the constant display of good deeds by those who manifested the Spirit of Jesus in every situation. We must be consistent in doing good deeds and works of compassion. You know, I think about this church. We have Mike and others who are with uh, mental health. Isn't that wonderful? We have Dillon Institute represented in our congregation. We have men represented. We have Little Lighthouse represented. Isn't it wonderful that in this body, God has called really a significant group of people with compassionate hearts to do good to those that a lot of people would just like to shovel off onto the sidelines. Let us not grow weary in well-doing. You know, there's a reward for good works. You're not saved by your good works, but there is a reward. Galatians 6, 7 to 8, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. For one sows to his own flesh, and from his flesh reaps corruption. <laughs> one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. In Romans 2, 5 to 8, God will render to every man according to his deeds. Those who by perseverance in doing good, well-doing, <laughs> seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious, not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, from them God will give wrath and indignation. We're not saved by good works, but there is a reward waiting in heaven for those who do not grow weary in doing good works. We must not lose heart in our prayer life, but rather consistently persist in prayer. How many passages speak of that? Luke 18, we have the parable of the unjust judge in which Jesus was telling him a parable that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. And you know the story. A widow came to the judge asking him to help her with her favor he wouldn't put up. Finally, he said, this woman is aggravating me just to shut her up. I'll grant her request. 
Now, Jesus wasn't saying God's that kind of judge, but if an unjust judge would respond out of aggravation, would not a loving God? You know, he sang the song, Jesus loves me, this I know. Isn't that wonderful? But notice how our Lord concluded that parable. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, if you pray and you pray and you pray and nothing happens, do you still have faith? There was a member of our family who was an alcoholic. Barbara and I prayed every day for 25 years. Our prayers became mechanical, but we still prayed every day for 25 years. At the end of 25 years, that person came and said, I have to have help within a week was dry and for 20 years or more now I think I forget how long hadn't touched a drop persistence in prayer persistence in prayer 1 Thessalonians 5.17 pray without ceasing Hebrews 6.18 with all prayer and petition pray at all times in the spirit with this in view be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints. That takes something, doesn't it? Many mornings a week, I leave my house at 5.15, meet with somebody. The mornings I don't, I sit in the dark, absolute silence for two hours, and pray. And you know, <laughs> that's still not enough time to cover the prayer list. <laughs> it's so long. Starting, this is something Barbara and I began, just like the clock. We start at 12 o'clock, the Lakes region of New Hampshire. <laughs> Moved down to Manchester, and then down to New York, and then down into Virginia, and on and on and on and on, and out to California, and then state of Washington, praying for churches, and end up back in Connecticut all the way around the clock. That takes a while. Especially when you know about the lives of these people and you stop and pray for them specifically. You see their face. I do not set before you an example. I'm just merely telling you what that's like. A sense of God's presence that I personally probably know at no other time before the Lord in prayer. We must not lose heart in our prayer life, but rather consistently persist in prayer. Well, a whole lot more could be said on this topic. Let's not forget that apostolic warning. Do not grow weary in well-doing. Father, thank you. That as we walk through this life, regardless of how weary our flesh becomes, by the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit, energy and life are imparted. Thank you through Jesus. Amen.